Uh, you know that sound means it's another episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. We're back at you with episode 6, C9, ORF72, and ALS. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Kinnett. And again, this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's up, Yos? Hey, man. How you doing, brother? It's good to hear your voice again. I think uh, this one we're going to call ALS and C90. What is it? 79? C- C9-ORF. C9-ORF. That's a, uh, yes, open reading. Yes, I remember Open now. reading yeah, frame. Yeah, I yes. love that ORF. I like yeah. to just say ORF. One of those mysterious genes out there. And we should probably de- um, define ALS. Uh, ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, it's a neurodegenerative disease that uh, affects motor neurons and uh yeah it also affected lou gehrig from uh the new york he was a yankee right you're a yankee yeah, yeah, yeah. York yankee it's a pretty it's an awful disease terrible disease uh so we're going to talk about it so yes the title als and this c9 or 72 which is a gene that uh out of a out of the out of the uh, egg and lab at harvard uh, found and is looking into and you know kind of we'll get into the details and how it's relevant for for that disease uh, a little bit later in the show we had dr asif maruf going to join us he's a postdoc in that lab so he's going to go over uh, his paper that just recently came out uh so before we get into this yos um i want to thank people out there man because these we've gotten some really really great reviews on itunes um yosef sent me one uh that someone put up and I wanted to give the name, uh, Yosef, I think, here of a couple of these people. Um, there, This one is there's El Campanati, and then there was Spencer at UGA on iTunes with some really great reviews. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate that. Yeah, I'd like to second that because we basically uh, volunteer our time to do this. So uh, the the positive feedback sort of like the uh, gasoline that keeps us pumped over here. Yeah. And, also, uh, we got something on Facebook, too, by Spencer Grimm. So please, everybody, you can reach us there. You can go on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, and we can be emailed at stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Well, you know, be a part of the show. Send us questions. You know, tell us your story. You guys want to be on as a possible guest. We have no problem. So, yeah, please, and also uh, don't forget to contribute to any rants you may have. Uh, to because Lord knows, there you know, doing academic research or any sort of research can really uh, generate some some good memes and good emotions and good uh, rants. <laughs> that, that, no, without uh, a doubt, we got a little, we got a fun one today at the end of the show for everybody out there. So let's let's go down the road here, man. Why don't we kick it off? Yost has got his uh, his science roundup, and he's going to get into it uh, right now. Let's go. Yeah. So uh, Michael Campbell at UPenn uh, published in Molecular Biology and Evolution, showing a high sensitivity variant in the tasting of bitterness. Uh, the bitter the sense of bitterness, uh, which is mediated through this gene TAS, T-A-S, 2R16, speaking of Mm. horrible names. Um, (laughs) This uh, gene seems to have evolved in East African populations. They did a bunch of sequencing of people around Africa and outside of non-Africans and uh, showed that this gene had a selective pressure, mainly uh, there was a variant that caused an... uh, increased sensitivity to this um, compound called salicin or salicin. It's uh, salicin. Yeah, salicin. It's, uh, it's in nuts and willow bark, you know, where aspirin comes from. And uh, so salicin is, I guess, gives this bitter taste. And um, 
they used that to test uh, some of the people they sequenced, and they found that uh, the gene had a selective pressure in East Africa and evolved into non-Africans as it moved out of Africa, I guess. Um, so European, wow. Yeah, so TAS2R16. And it's related to another bitter-sensing uh, chemoreceptor called tas 2R38, which uh, is a receptor for uh, PTC, another one of these compounds that tastes bitter. So it's the the bitter taste of things is this research. Them are you, are you into uh, bitter like candies or bitters? Do you uh, like bitters? No, you know I just started to like olives, which I know to an Italian must sound like heresy, Ew, but wait. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I can't do the whole bitter, and it's just never appealed to me. But I'm starting to starting to. I mean, I guess coffee's bitter, and I love coffee now. So, what um, about Sour Patch Kids? You like those? Yeah, I'm more on the sweet side. I think. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> so uh, on a more uh, global and more depressing note, um, polio seems to be outbreaking in Syria now yeah i'm a little scared of that because i definitely don't have that mark in my arm uh that some uh, you know people in europe still have and i just you know being born post what 72 when they stopped giving the polio i don't don't know but yeah there there are marked people out there yeah and i feel like i i just do not have i definitely do not have the vaccine but uh that so that's kind of scary uh it's also been uh, small pockets of uh, the Horn of Africa, but you know, being that Syria is a, a train wreck of a situation, that's kind of scary. Um, I thought this was interesting. India launched its uh, Mars craft. It's called I forget the Indian name for it, but uh, it translates to uh, Mars craft, and it's they it's a explorer that is you know in about three hundred days going to reach Mars, and it's not really a rover like. Ours is on the planet. This one's just going to hang out and take some measurements. But, you know, I thought it was amazing they did that for just $72 million. I think it took them like two years to do it. Wow. So, yeah, uh, India's launching their space program, uh, at least in the headlines. Dude, I love space so much. You know, they talk about shutting down the space programs. and uh, I mean, it's like, you know, it, there's so much wonder in space, you know. There's so much creativity in space. How do you – it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. I, I have to say Hubble changed my life perspective. I mean, when you see 500 billion galaxies, it's yeah, like I mean, just a galaxy alone. Our galaxy is hard to fathom, let alone 500 billion of those. It's, it's um, wild. Yeah, I can't take that number. It really bothers me. <laughs> um, Chris McDevitt had uh, published in Nature Chemical Biology showing that uh, zinc, uh, the you know, how zinc can protect people from bacterial infections. They showed uh, the mechanisms as to how, this do, uh, how it exhibits this effect by jamming a protein transporter called PSA-BCA. Uh, and it stops strep. Uh, Streptococcus, I forget the full name, but uh, strep from uh, um, it basically utilizing manganese, which is a critical uh, molecule for its survival. So the zinc stops it from processing manganese. So I thought that was uh, pretty cool. interesting. Yeah, it's all mediated through this uh, protein transporter. So that's in Nature Chemical Biology. Uh, David Goldstein, actually, this is, um, I'm thinking of a different study. This is David 
Goldstein's group showed in Neuron that uh, congenital microencephalopathy, and, sorry, encephaly, uh, microcephaly, gosh, I screwed that word up. I know. <laughs> congenital microcephaly via uh, um, exon sequencing that he did. Uh, so he looked at uh, basically uh, what's being transcribed in the cell, uh, what kind of protein machinery is going on. Not necessarily protein, but right before the protein stage. Uh, he did some exon seek, which, uh, how would you call it, uh, inside profile of a cell? Right. Yeah. yeah. What's 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 actively going on in that? Particular yeah. Like, what's what are the what's the active? Uh, what are the genes that are actively on? Yeah. So they show a congenital microcephaly is due to this gene called uh, ASNS mutation. It's a, a spare gene synthetase. So uh, I thought that hmm. was an interesting study. Yeah, yeah, you can find that in neuron. Um, this next paper, which is, uh, what I was just confusing it for is by Sattler and Rothstein, uh, published in Neuron. This paper is relevant to our guest and ALS, um, at Johns Hopkins showed that that same gene C9ORF72, uh, had, has a six nucleotide motif that leads to abnormalities in ALS and frontal temporal dementia. So, uh, Maybe, uh, yeah, in the iPS cells, uh, the induced pluripotent stem cells in, in the study that they used showed that um, this mutation led to uh, RNA tr- uh, transcripts to clump up together with uh, RNA binding proteins, altering gene expression and causing cell death ultimately. So, uh, you know, maybe Asif could shed some light on what's going on with this uh, coming up. Yeah, that's a cool paper. I read that paper in Neuron. That's a cool paper. Yeah. So um, there's that. And uh, I'll, I'll just do one more here. Uh, Nature Genetics uh, study from Cardiff uh, showing that they basically did a whole a huge GWAS study, genome-wide association screen uh, for Alzheimer's targets, and um, found 21 of them, 11 that were new. And they had uh, a large population for the study. They did... Um, uh, 17,000 uh, people who were affected with Alzheimer's and 37,000 healthy controls. And they found, wow. yeah, one of the 11 new alleles that was associated with the gene is this HLA-DRB5 and uh, another one called Instead of five, just replace it with a one. I'm not going to repeat the HLA, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's one of those uh, HLA. That's one of those immune genes, right? Human leukoid antigen. Yeah. So it's an immune system gene. Uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I thought that was interesting, and given the numbers, um, yeah, it was pretty. Those pretty, are some crazy numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of new studies coming from the you know sequencing of the human genome we're learning so much from it i mean it's it's a good dollar return for the government yeah they're saying 10 to 1 i think for the yeah, it's pretty um, good yeah they and it's just going to keep growing so i mean yeah, yeah. I, I just think it back joseph like before that you know like what was going on before the human genome you know like i mean we're like we're kind of been in it since we're new age science guys who've been around with the with this with all these cool genetic tools but they didn't have that beforehand that's yeah, crazy. Think yeah. about. Oh. Yeah, and uh we've also talked about reproduction and what it means for that and um and also the court system, what it means for that. It's yeah. it's just so far reaching. Um 
knowing more about the blueprint of our bodies that uh, more uh, you start to look at the body more as a more like a machine with certain hardware and software going on it's not as uh not as moralistic as it used to be i guess and or more moralistic when it comes to making these decisions on how to reproduce so uh it's it's interesting what the genome is doing uh for uh, everyday decisions and you know uh, medical decisions it's just uh, it just keeps going like would you want to know if you had alzheimer's that gene uh, no 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 you I would not want to know no, if somebody you know could why? tell you, because as soon as I forgot my keys, I'd be bugging out. <laughs> You'd be like, you know what I'm saying? Early I'd be, onset. I'd be, I'd be, oh, it'd be great. I'd be exactly. I'd be like, oh no, it's early onset. <laughs> I mean, and look, I as a neuro as a neuroscientist, I already know too much. When you know too much, it's over. It's a wrap. I remember one time I had like. You know, I thought my leg was going a little numb, and I and I diagnosed myself with like descending paralysis, with like all these. Uh, I don't. If I knew I was getting ALS, I'd be a disaster walking around. Seriously, yeah. I don't want to know. Yeah, it's almost too much information. But um, yeah, it's too much. If you have stuff in your family, though, you may reconsider. But Alzheimer's is one of those ones. It happens so late that you're like, maybe I just I'll ride yeah, this I think one it's through. Like specific, like for example, Yosef, well, look at all these with these women in breast cancer uh, with the BRCA one gene. Yeah, you know these these women that that the Angelina Jolie. You, you have that mutation. You, what's the incidence? What's the likely you're going to get breast cancer? It's Angelina Jolie. Uh, she, I think it's like forty or fifty percent. Yeah, They're if you have preventative mass. Yeah, just, yeah, that's her, crazy. It, it, it killed her mother, so I could see why she was yeah. scared enough to, to you know, double yeah. mastectomy uh, as a preventative measure. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, so it's a mixed bag. Sometimes you want to know, other times you just don't want to know. So. Um, I, and like things like it's at least with Alzheimer's, they found that like APOE, some of these people are, they're really highly functional for a while. It seems like they almost burn out. Like if they have this, uh, mutation that makes them more susceptible. It's also that like, apparently like ha a bunch of Nobel prize winners have a higher rate of this mutation. Cause it seems like it's like they're overactive um early on and then like the alzheimer sets in just i've seen that with apoe before the um yeah yeah so it's interesting i don't think i would want to know about alzheimer's but other things i i may want to know if it's at least preventative something that you could prevent like breast cancer but that's not really in the male side of my family so at least I don't think it is. <laughs> yeah, at least you don't think it is. Sorry, right, you don't need to know. So, yeah. Uh, on that note, wrap up the science roundup. I'll keep it short today. Let's uh, – thank you, man. Let's. I'm going to do this real quick because we got Asif coming on any minute now. Um, this I'm just going to do this in the news. Joseph, you might have seen this, but UC San Diego got a $100 million gift uh, for stem cell research. So um, there was $100 million hundred million dollar donation they're going to start a new clinical center to study stem cells uh the gift was provided by t danny sanford you know this guy yos no he's a south dakota businessman made a, made his fortune in the banking and the credit card industry um you know they got a lot of things uh a lot of good things at uc san diego they got lawrence goldstein over there you know him he's a real big uh big shot researcher yeah i've uh, seen him talk he's brilliant Great, brilliant man. Uh, does excellent work. Um, so, so good for them. So they're going to build the center and kind of hope to push their 
their research along further. Wow, is that um, fresh off the presses today? Yeah, no, that's not off the press today, but it's recent. You know, November fourth is this press release, so it's been in the last week. Wow, that's that's awesome. So it's a good. It's nice for them. I didn't see the next thing. I didn't read it, Yos, but I have a little summary here. The, the the title intrigued me. It's the stem cells of obese women promote the growth of breast tumors. So I, was, I read that and I was like, what? So I go in it and it's saying how there's obesity. They show that obesity causes changes in stem cells that result in cancers growing more aggressively, apparently. Yeah, I saw that. I was going to cover that, but uh, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, but again, like I don't know the whole thing. So they were looking at uh, mesenchymal stem cells from adipose or from the fat. Um, and so they looked, um, they, they got plastic surgery patients and they isolated, uh, they got fat samples and they were taken from lean and obese patients. Um, and they found that the stem cells from these were much more invasive from the morbidly obese patients than from the lean patients. So when they took these, these mesenchymal stem cells from these obese patients and they would put them, you know, in their model, they'd be much more invasive. So there's something about, um, you know, obese, uh, these obese patients, these obese women, and makes these stem cells become much more invasive, and so they implicate it in possible breast tumor aggressiveness and so forth. Wow, that's uh, pretty interesting. I mean, you know as well as I do that uh, stem cells share a lot of the qualities of cancer cells. There's even a cancer stem cell ther- theory out there, because what is cancer? It's uncontrolled cell growth. And uh, stem cell, one of the properties of a stem cell is that it can divide. And so at least in that sense, uh they share that property. When we inject stem cells into uh, animals, uh, they produce tumors. So uh, that's actually one of the characterizations is the formation of teratomas, uh, these multi-layered uh, uh, lineages uh, of a tumor uh, that's expressed. So um, it's interesting that they were able to take mesenchymal stem cells and show that effect was specific to tumor invasion I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're much more aggressive. And uh, what is it about? I mean, just another reason know, not to be sorry, morbidly I, obese. I, I mean, guess. I guess they're with. I didn't. Again, I didn't read it. Um, so this group in Tulane. But I'm assuming what they're suggesting is that in the fat, in the breast, right? Uh, if they're obese and these stem cells are there, um, they can just kind of go a little haywire. They can just start... If there's uh, some sort of tumor and it has a stem cell component to it, which a lot of people think, like Joseph just mentioned, and you're obese, then that stem cell just may go a little more crazy and make it a lot more aggressive. It's a, it's an interesting theory. Hmm. All right, I bet you before, there's so. some hormonal stuff going on there, too. Some some MPY or ghrelin or estrogen, something going on. You know? Something going on. But, oh. So that was, that, was, that was interesting. The title got me, so I, I, I just... Figured out, share it, and finally here, nice segue into uh, the paper we're going to discuss with Asif. You must have seen this, Yos. I don't know. It's, it was in um, it was in Science, and so October twenty fourth. Um, it's out of the lab of Susan Lindquist, and the first author is Chi Yun Chung, and this is from MIT. And the title is Identification and Rescue of Alpha Synuclein Toxicity in Parkinson's Patient Derived Neurons. Um, so. We talked about Parkinson's last time. We, we talked about these, how these cells um, that produce dopamine die. And sometimes they have this hallmark. Sometimes they have a hallmark. I guess it doesn't sound right. Uh, a hallmark yes. that you see. It's a being lot of like, the time. yeah, yeah. It's like being a little pregnant. A little pregnant for a <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
So um, the, you find these alpha-synuclein deposits. They build up in the cell, and the cell eventually will die. So there's this group. Uh, it's so cool, man. They use yeast. All right. So they figured like they would try to model neurodegeneration or somehow find these drug a drug, if you will, and a screening model in yeast. So they engineered these this humble the humble baker's yeast to to express this alpha-synuclein. And what they found is just like in neurons, they got real sick and they aggregated and, and died. And so they screened like 200,000 compounds and they found this one that really, really, really like just cleaned out the alpha-synuclein and really helped a lot. So they did a little bit of work on some roundworm and some rat brain cells. And then they teamed up with um, a neurologist in Mass General Hospital and they developed, uh, they got uh, skin samples. They created iPS cells from Parkinson's patients. They d- differentiated them with neurons. Rudy Anish is on this paper, so they were involved there. And what they then found, they saw, they saw these aggregates, and you know they stressed them, and they were sick. And then they put this compound on, and they found that it really helped. So um, you know they they say that they're you know they got a lot to do, and they're ways away. You know they they're getting it to a drug, but uh, it's pretty cool that they use a yeast screen to hmm. and translated that all the way to a disease relevant human cell. Uh, and now have a potential new compound uh, to slow down the death of Parkinson's disease. So that's pretty cool. I thought. You know, I've seen her talk before, and uh, the idea of using yeast to model Parkinson's seems so far fetched because you got this, you know, this 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 eukaryotic cell that doesn't have a brain. <laughs> it's it, it doesn't have a nervous system, and it, it it's so formed. But the way she did it was so beautiful, and to show. To do a screen like that, I it just blows my mind that she was able to go from something. And, and you know what? Every now, every now and again, when stuff like this comes out, it makes me feel because sometimes I'm just like, man, people are still modeling things in yeast, you know, like wow. But you know what? It's so simple, and this translated all the way to the human cell. So there you go, right? Simple yeah. model, and it worked. Yeah, and- or, it's, or it's working, I should say. Yeah, and uh, synuclein is a major part of the hallmark. Uh, it's a major Louis it's a body some, some cluster. Kind of yes, yes, yes. The alpha synuclein builds up and creates these Louis bodies, and uh, that we characteristically see that in the patients of Parkinson's uh, patients. So, uh, interesting stuff there, man. Yep. So, uh, all right, man. Thanks for the uh, roundup. There was a little bit of stem cell news, so let's close down this portion of the show and uh, move on here. All right, yo. So now we're we're moving along to the uh, interview portion of our show here. It's a cool. Uh, this is really cool because uh, a friend of ours, uh, Yosef and myself, Doctor Asif Maruf, he will join us in a second here. And his paper um, just came out in Nature Neuroscience. Yo, it's pretty cool. It involves the disease ALS. It's a neurodegenerative disease. Lou Gehrig's. Lou Gehrig's disease, exactly. We talked about Parkinson's last time. So it's a nice segue to another um, neurodegenerative disease. So why don't we bring in uh, Asif, Dr. Asif Maruf. Welcome to the show. What's going on, Asif? How's it going, y'all? Great, man. Good to hear your voice again. How's everything over at Harvard? Uh, it's getting really cold these days. It's yeah. uh, below freezing tonight. Yeah, so. it's cold, right? Man, <laughs> I walked outside today. It was like winter cold. Yeah, even my yeah. dog. My dog was like, uh, "Can I get a sweater?" <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> you might need a sweater pretty soon. But uh, yeah, man. Well, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on the paper. So, um, Doctor uh, Maru. So Asif is at Harvard. He's in the lab. He's a postdoctoral fellow with Doctor Kevin Egan. Um, and this paper 
uh, came out just just recently, right? Also, a couple days ago online. It was like a week ago. Yeah. So it's so a week ago in Nature Neuroscience. Uh, the title of the paper is the mouse, uh, and it's got this. Uh, it's Yosef and I have talked about these chi names, how they get crazy sometimes. The name it's the mouse C nine or for O R F seventy two. Ortholog is enriched in neurons known to degenerate in ALS and FTD. All right, so why don't you just give us a little bit of background, Asif? Tell us about what you do in the lab, your your work, your study, and then we can get a little bit into this paper. So um, I joined his lab in 2011, and um, I joined his lab because he has a great deal Who's he? of IPS cells. Who's he? I'm um, sorry, Dr. Kevin Eggins' group at uh, Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Um, his group has made a huge bank of induced pluripotent stem cells, and these cells are both from controlled uh, non-disease patients as well as um, disease patients. And so he also has several hundred uh, patients, uh, fibroblast lines from hundreds of patients. And so it's a large, very large collection, and it was a great place to start as far as using stem cells to model disease in a dish. Um, I went there because I wanted to learn more about stem cell uh, research. Um, instead of looking at just differentiation, um, getting more into other approaches to model disease. And so his group focuses on ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And this is a disease that affects the motor neurons, um, called so because they control movement and muscle activity. And so the motor circuit consists of multiple cell types, um, one of which is the spinal motor neuron, which is ca- classically characterized to, to degenerate in ALS. Um, but there's also the cortical motor neuron, which uh, resides in the cortex and projects to the spinal cord, therefore controlling coordinated movement. And so that's the cell population that I'm studying in Kevin Eggins' group, and I'm trying to characterize these cells Within disease models. Now, uh, tell us about this gene in the study. Is it's an ORF gene, which I assume is one of those open reading frame genes. Um, we talked about this gene earlier in the science roundup, and it, it ties in nicely with your paper. So, I was wondering if you could tell us more about what you found in this particular study. Okay, so basically, this gene it doesn't even have a name yet. It's chromosome nine or C nine open reading frame ORF seventy two, which is the location where the gene is. Uh, on the chromosome, it was identified through a GWAS study, which is a genome-wide association study. I'm sorry, I love, it, I, sorry I love saying GWAS. How do you say it? It's GWAS, GWAS, right? GWAS. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so this was a unique uh, case where they screened through thousands of genomes um, of ALS patients and found that this particular region of chromosome 9 had a repeat expansion. And this repeat expansion is a hexanucleotide. It consists of four Gs and two Cs. And the number of expansions corresponds with disease. Now, the reason this was really interesting is because Huntington's disease is very similar to this. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Expansion of Huntington. Yeah, I was thinking that. With the poly-Q mutation, the uh, polyglutamine uh, mutations. 
Exactly. Yes. So, yes. so to just just to be clear for everyone out there, basically, it's it's what is it? The, the severity of the disease correlates to how many mutations there are, right? Or how many times the not the number of mutations, repeats, but how many times how many the nucleotide repeats, right? Right. Okay. Yes. So these are like genomic uh, repeats that are called expansions. And so these expansions correspond to uh, disease. And so if you have them, you're very likely to have the disease. And so what was interesting about this is that we still don't know anything about this gene other than it's uh, correlated very strongly with ALS. Um, And what they found in the initial studies that described it in 2011, they found that this gene is altered and expanded, and that they found the this gene ended up um, accounting for roughly thirty to fifty percent of all familial ALS patients, which wow. is quite remarkable. In that SOD one mutation or super SOD mutase, yes, dis- that's only dis- 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 Yeah, that's only in like what ten percent at best of patients. Dis- Ten percent of familial at best, yeah, and really less than one percent of all uh, ALS patients worldwide. C9 North seventy two, on the other hand, accounts for twenty to fifty percent of familial ALS and about twenty five to thirty percent of all sporadic cases. Wow! And so, it's and it's a, also in this frontal gene. What's this frontal temporal dementia as well? Oh, so it gets even more complicated. <laughs> the plot thickens. Yes, not only does it get the ALS, but it connects a motor neuron disease to a dementia. So FTD stands for frontotemporal dementia. And it's characterized in a similar fashion to Alzheimer's in that it affects neurons in the cortex and leads to behavioral abnormalities such as changes in personality as well as um, changes in behavior and language interpretation. Uh, and in the later stages, it also affects perception and memory. And so this is really interesting because here's one gene expansion that now connects a motor neuron disease, ALS, with dementia. And so what really is striking is that we don't know what this gene is. It doesn't even have a name yet. Um, we, and we know that it corresponds to a disease and so this paper that was published recently that, that my paper is on trying to figure out what this gene is and where it's expressed. Does it have similar structure to other known genes uh, in the genome? So it gets this gene, like the more I learn about it, the more complicated I realize it is. Um, so this gene actually doesn't start transcription Sorry, translation at the initial exon. You know how we learn in biology that it starts at the ATG? Right. It actually starts downstream of that. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And so there was a science paper that came out last year on this subject, and it's kind of thrown a wrench in everyone's plans. Um, it seems to be related to a RNA group of binding proteins called RAF GIFs. I don't know too much about it, but I think it has to do with RNA processing. Yeah, I saw that in the Rothstein paper too. It's this RNA binding protein accumulation. Uh, 
a buildup of of sorts that happens when the binding happens. I, I, I'm not sure what's going on, but it seems like it's causing a traffic jam of some sorts or <laughs> making making yeah. protein translation effects that are just you know clogging up the cell or for some reason affecting motor neurons. This this is interesting. I'm not sure what's going on, but so so the point so so awesome then for this gene. So really, there's not much known about. Or at least there wasn't there about C9 where like or localization, what the what the protein is, what it does. You know, there's a, there's not really much known about this gene and protein. Exactly. So there's no good antibody that's available yet, and um, obviously this is because of its prevalence. It's an area of intense investigation, and so what people want to know is does the loss of this gene or a loss of function of this gene result in ALS or FTD? Or is it a gain of function? And so I guess the paper you discuss in your science roundup discusses the possibility of a gain of function where this toxic RNA that's produced from the repeat expansion is leading to disease. And so in that study, they also had an antisense oligo, which neutralized that weird, that abnormal RNA transcript. And so mm, I don't know how much you want me to get into it. But. No, that's that's interesting. No, so tell us now. In, so in the paper, basically, you, uh, um, so there's this there's this there's this gene with not, not a lot of fun- known function or temporal spatial expression patterns and such, uh, but they know it's you, like you said it's it's tremendously involved in this ALS, right? I mean, fifty percent of familial is, is is a crazy number. So yeah. so tell so tell us what you find a little bit more in detail in this paper. You the distribution of this gene, where you find it in the brain, and so forth. So there have been studies looking at uh, autopsy uh, brain samples from humans, but we wanted to get a better idea about where it's expressed throughout the body, and so. We went after finding the mouse ortholog, and in finding that, we developed and made uh, transgenic mice that had a LACZ, which is a reporter construct, that's integrated at the site of uh, C9OR72 um, transcription. And so, so, so basically, so for- when this gene is expressed, uh, it can either be expressed at half the levels or a heterozygote or at 0% or the homozygote. And so this paper that was just published doesn't describe the phenotype of the mice, but there's a paper in the works on that. But this paper discusses just where the gene is expressed in general. And so we characterize uh, different ages and different parts of the body of the mouse, of the mice, and found some pretty striking results. So just so, so just to be clear on the method for everyone, this, this uh, laxi will, when... For example, when that gene turns on, it'll in, 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 so in, in theory it'll turn on this LACZ. Any time that gene would be expressed, this this now would be expressed, and you can yeah, use the, a technique the gene that basically beta turns gal, it. beta gal staining. They call it beta gal staining, and it turns the cells blue. Right. So when you do the histology, all the cells or all the places that are expressing this gene will turn blue. So you can get an idea of where the gene is expressed. Or there are also antibodies that could bind to it and then you could change it to any color. So what what kind of expression did you see in the brain? You said it was pretty spectacular. Was it in just motor neurons or was it global expression? So it's kind of all over the place in a very interesting uh, expression pattern. Um, I think what's most interesting about the expression is that it seems to be in specifically neurons and so 
not only is it expressed by cells in the cortex, the hippocampus, cerebellum, various like brain regions known to be involved in dementia as well as uh, motor neuron disease, um, but this gene is expressed specifically in neurons. And so whenever we did a co-staining with beta-gal, we found that over 95% were uh, staining with NUN, which is a marker of neurons. Uh, we also found that it was negative for uh, markers of microglia and astrocytes. Now, the reason this is important is because there's a huge uh, theory out there, um, including my lab, that pushes this idea that there is what's called non-cell autonomous effects on uh, degeneration. Yeah, that has so, to do with the hormones. Was it prostaglandin or which one was it? The uh, Yeah, um, that's right. What, it's a prostaglandin? So uh, downstream, there's a prostaglandin uh, that's involved in uh, basically causing the microglia to attack the neurons and cause them to die, and if so, you want to think of it that way. So there's no expression of uh, the ORF gene, as we would just call it the ORF gene, I guess, in astrocytes. So this is a whole different avenue uh, that you're talking about with this C9 ORF gene. So, so initially, ALS, many people thought it was something intrinsic to the motor neurons that caused them to die. And so many of the studies from like 20, 30 years ago looked at what it is that causes these motor neurons to die. And not until, I'd say, the past 5, 10 years has this idea that the environment is actually causing these motor neurons to die. And so the fact that C9 North is expressed in motor neurons suggests the former hypothesis that it is something in the motor neurons themselves. At least in the case of this mutation, um, it could also be a non-cell autonomous uh, effect too in other cases as well, like with the, you know, maybe glia are involved in other cases. So this seems to be a, a particularly uh, neuronal effect from this, this mutation. We can't really say, draw that conclusion about effects. All we can say is that the gene, which we still don't know much about and doesn't even have a name, a proper name, I should say, um, uh, is expressed by motor neurons that are cholinergic and also by neurons in, throughout the brain. Oh, also the gene is restricted to the nervous system. There are parts of like the testes and the spleen that also express it, but it's mainly in the nervous system. Wow, that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah, especially how it's also expressed in the testes. <laughs> I, feel like a lot of I feel like a lot of things are expressed in the testes. <laughs> that are also expressed in men's brains, probably. Yeah, true. you know, isn't that, isn't that funny, right? <laughs> oh, it's in the men's male brain, and it's in the testes. Very hard to believe. So, um, Asif, I, you know, ALS, Lou Gehrig's obviously one of the most famous baseball players in the world who was afflicted by this disease. It was, uh, you know, there's also this case of the Italian soccer team where there's a higher rate in this one team and, you know, all these sort of flukes. No one really knows the cause, even when where they know the cause with like the dismutase and everything. It's just sort of this, why, why, what's going on with motor neurons? Why are they particularly affected? You get people who look like, uh, you know, everybody knows, um, what's the famous astrophysicist, uh, oh, yeah, uh, Hawkins. Hawkins. You know, yeah. everybody knows how, like, a and the, at the end of the day, only, like, the eyes are spared. He doesn't have ALS, but, like, typically the, the, uh, the, uh, was it the ocular motor neurons are spared? It's just sort of this crazy uh, wasting disease of a of motor. It's almost like losing your body. It's but not your mind. 
Yeah, it's just, that is really strange. It's a really, it's a really sad disease. It's it doesn't terrible. affect as many people. Terrible disease. Jeez. It's like one in I want to say one in ten thousand, but it is really aggressive. It like many people who have ALS pretty much die within like a year to two years, and so or, after diagnosis. Um, to get at your initial uh, statement, Yosef, what's interesting about many of the genes that are mutated or affected in ALS is that, as we said earlier, they're involved in RNA processing. Now, many of these genes, when knocked out, have led to embryonic lethality. And so something about these genes are quite essential for RNA processing in nearly all cells. And so it it really begs the question what it is that leaves motor neurons specifically susceptible to dying off, whereas others are spared, despite having the same mutated uh, proteins uh, in their cells, you know? Mm. And so that's something that's, like, part of the greater field of neurodegeneration overall. Like, Alzheimer's disease is also a neurodegenerative disease, and uh, same with dementia, Huntington's, Parkinson's. And so the, many of the pathological markers used to describe these diseases are pretty much the same and conserved. They're just expressed in different cell types throughout the nervous system. I have to so say, what, what it is that leaves susceptibility is like one of the big things I want to go after yeah, in my career. I, I mean, I, I, it's, I have to say ALS is sort of like Parkinson's in the sense that it, uh, nine times out of ten, we have no idea what started. It's a very particular population. It's not as global as, say, Alzheimer's or even like with Huntington's. We know the mutation causes certain cells to die and how we could test for that. And, um, you know, MS, we know it's autoimmune to the, you know, myelin producing cells. And now with ALS and Parkinson's, we, it's, it's a very particular population and nine times out of 10, we have no idea what's going on. It just amazes me. Like with the, uh, with the Italian soccer, do you think there's a sports connection as well? Or maybe a pest, an environment like something exposed to that team uh, that that made them more affected. Uh, I'm not familiar with it. Do they get ALS or? Yeah, no. It? There's this case. I, I have to look it up again. But um, a particular soccer team in Italy had like five times the rate of normal ALS. Uh, uh, rates in the in the general society and it was just this outlier and i i don't know i i i know uh kevin's actually talked about it before too there's just a lot out there and it's not it it, it just amazes me how um little we know about how the etiology of the disease so yeah that's i mean i i think with uh this gene the c9 orf what Tell, remind, 72. 72. We're, we're at least getting a bigger clue because th- these rates are amazing. And uh, who, I, I'm sure there's more to come from, from this gene. And um, thanks for uh, explaining at least some of the mystery to our audience. Uh, Asif, what, where is yeah. this expressed developmentally? I mean, do you, you, you guys looked in the adult mouse brain or did you look throughout the development, like in the embryo? So we looked throughout development. It doesn't seem to come on until after birth. Um, and it, yeah, so we don't see expression until after birth and it increases. Um, we also showed in the paper that we looked at some human spinal cord sections from adult, which is kind of cool because then we like saw the expression, um, 
comparing both mouse and human together in the spinal cord, and that there, the genes does seem to be expressed in the motor neuron pools in the spinal cord. And and what about what about localization of the protein when you do staining? I mean, do you, do you, do you, I mean, when you looked at the beta gal, can you get an, a feel for where it's expressed with the technique, or it just basically fills the cell? It doesn't. It's not good at giving you an idea for where in the cell or how it's expressed, nuclear, cytoplasmic, or something. Yeah, we don't know any of that yet. It's okay. definitely an area that everyone's really excited to figure out, and I'm so sure someone out there is trying to make this antibody, huh? Like, yeah, yeah, I bet. I mean, obviously, it was 50%. You know, it's really crazy. So working in Kevin's lab is pretty cool because he has many clinicians who are, like, neurologists at MGH who also work in the lab. And they also see tons of patients, and they do genetic testing of many of their patients. And so they just tell me that the prevalence of this gene is huge, like astronomical. They said, like, on average, it is around 50 60% of people that come in that have this expansion. Wow. And that's just crazy. I mean, especially yeah. for us biologists, you know, we're always hoping that there's going to be something that's a genetic correlation to something as complicated as certain brain diseases. But yeah. Well, wow, it's man. Very exciting C- for that con- reason. Congratulations. And uh, Chris, unless you have any other questions, uh, I, I think uh, we should move on to the second question that we like to ask our guests is uh for you know for the more general audience out there where do you a lot of people just want to know hey cut to the beef give us some you know cures where where do you think the nearest stem cell therapies are going to come from on a more global perspective so i've always been a huge uh supporter of cell-based therapies i think that when we lose neurons or damage certain neurons through a stroke Um, those circuits get affected. And so in order to repair that, I don't think we're going to be able to have drugs that are going to repair those neural circuits. And so if in an ideal world, we will have the actual neurons that we can transplant and ideally would have them integrate. Now, I know that's a pipe dream and many people, while I would love to see that one day, I don't think that's going to happen because it's similar to like the gene therapy a situation where it was just happened a little too early and gave us gave them a bad name as scientists, and so I feel like many of the trials that have happened with stem cells, uh, neural stem cells, have not uh, bared as much fruit as everyone would have hoped. Um, that being said, uh, it is a tall order for to take a stem cell derived neuron and place them into an environment that you're hoping that those neurons are going to reintegrate. And that's a, a lot to expect. But, I, I mean, I like, I like to believe uh, that it's possible. And so maybe it will happen. So and, uh, we know what you don't think is going to occur. But what do you, where do you think uh, something will come about? Like um, uh, blood disease or stroke or, I don't know, drug discovery? What do you see the most immu- uh, immediate uh, benefits from stem cell science? Well, what's happening now is that there's a lot of disease modeling going on. And so if you can recapitulate the, the disease state through the gen- uh, initially through the generation of the neurons that degenerate. So like in Parkinson's, you guys like make dopamine neurons and want to study, like recapitulate the appropriate environment to see if they're going to die off. 
Um, if that were possible, and it is possible with ALS as well as many other diseases that have been published now, there's like hundreds of papers out there, maybe hundreds. Um, but there are several papers describing uh, recapitulating the disease phenotype uh, using patient-derived iPS cells. And so... Yeah, one of your uh, colleagues over there, Lee Rubin, uh, had a nice study. This Was it this year or last year where they used iPS cells to find a, a drug that uh, saves the, the motor neurons from dying off? I forget the name of it. It was like Paul Sorkin or some some you know small molecule that was able to save the cells in a dish. And... Um, that was really interesting. I, you probably know more about it than me, considering he's probably down the hall from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know a little bit about that. He, it's basically the idea that if you can make this model, you can then screen through drugs in a dish on human cells. And in so doing, if you can say that this model, so with that example, there's a model that we made that's basically looking at the survival of uh, spinal motor neurons. And if you grow them within this SOD framework, uh, it'll cause the motor neurons to die off. And so if you have that as a model, you can then screen through drugs to figure out how to prevent them from dying and finding out which hits that you get from those screens. What are those hits? What are they? What biological pathways do they affect? So we can not only learn more about the disease as it relates to humans themselves, but we can also develop uh, novel therapeutics. And I think that's going to be the path that most uh, people are going to take, especially with these neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, that being said, it's still, uh, I want everyone to be hopeful about it, but I also want everyone to be realistic. Um, it's an in vitro model. And so ideally we would take that, uh, anything that comes from that as far as drugs and either put them into a mouse model or other uh, model systems such as monkeys or whatever. You know, I feel that. I, yeah, I feel that. You know, Asif, that our our country has in the healthcare and pharmaceutical has been built off of drugs. You know, you know that's what our FDA knows. They know drugs. They know small molecules. They know drugs. They don't know cell replacement therapies. This is a very new thing. So the guidelines and all these new hurdles are being jumped and established. So I feel like people in the end, or, or not in the end, but are, are kind of saying like, all right, let's let's start with the you know let's just start with the drug screens and yeah that's great but I I agree with you and that some of these diseases I just feel like you have to really replace them if you want a, a viable long term therapy. I like to take the approach of uh, what was his name our our VP where he said don't don't judge against the Almighty judge against the alternative. Joe Biden, don't judge Joe me by Biden. the almighty, judge me by the alternative. Yeah, that's a good one. That's that's kind of how I see it. Like, what is the alternative out there, you know? Yeah, that's true. A drug that was, like, it's for Parkinson's. It's a drug that I was developed, you know, uh, several decades ago. And um, oh, you currently, mean the, the, most the, people are getting deep brain stimulators. But, you know, wouldn't it be better if they got their own cells back? If we could ensure a way that there is no... Uh, that they're cancer-free and that they're not going to give rise to any tumors. And I think it would be awesome if we had a way to get those cell populations and put them back in. Yeah, that um, that study, by the way, uh, Lee Rubin's group did was in uh, Cell Stem Cell in April of 2013. And it, it's Ken Paulone is the name of the 
I always remember as Ken and Paul <laughs> in the drug that they discovered through IPS and doing the reprogramming and making motor neurons. So I agree that's that's probably going to be the most immediate pay dirt from uh, stem cell therapies in terms of uh, getting something that people could take in a pill form. I mean, sometimes you get a disease and you're just like, Doc, give me a pill. Let me, you know, let it stop the disease. That's what people want. Or, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of... Yeah, second best would be cell replacement therapy, but everybody just wants a pill where they go home, take it, go to bed, <laughs> and uh, feel better. But you know, uh, uh, there's from the cellular screening part front and um, the cell replacement front. I think uh, IPS technology has really changed the game. It definitely has. Yeah, I think like with the drugs, they it's something I was saying before that. It's really important to know, to identify disease states before the onset of pathology, like before diagnosis. Many times, like, especially with Alzheimer's, like once you're diagnosed with it, you're pretty much, you've already lost so many neurons. Even with Parkinson's, like, what is it, less than 50% are there when you're diagnosed, right? Something like that? Yeah, roughly about that, yeah. Yeah, so by then it's kind of like on a downward spiral and you kind of I get it before it even starts there. Yeah. Yeah. Early detection is always key. So um, lastly, uh, do you think you could tell us a funny story from either, you know, undergrad or graduate school experience or your recent times as a postdoc at Harvard? Um, sure. Uh, as it relates to me specifically or some... some as long as it's funny. Funny stories. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, one one funny story is uh, prior to Shinya Yamanaka winning the Nobel Prize, uh, he gave a talk at the Rockefeller, and uh, this was shortly after his human IPS paper came out, and so everyone was very excited. You know, we all read the papers and were very familiar with it, but we had never seen him talk, and so I go into the auditorium, and uh, there's just every seat is taken, and it's almost completely full. And uh, I found one seat very, very close to the front. And there's, like, a row of girls sitting in front of me. And uh, while Yamanaka is giving this talk, uh, it's called the Harvey Society Lectures. And so everyone who goes there has to dress very formal with, like, a bow tie and a fancy tuxedo. Um, And they take him out for drinks and everything. So it's just kind of funny because they're all kind of relaxed from dinner, but then uh, still have to give a very big uh, science talk. Anyway, he's super formal and giving his talk. And I just, like, look to see how many people are taking notes. And I look in front of me, and I see a row of three girls all, like, doodling in their notebooks. Not even, like, taking notes, just, like, drawing uh, pictures of Yamanaka with, like, hearts around his head. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I almost lost it because here is a science rock star. You have, like, grown grad students, maybe even postdocs, and they're drawing hearts around his head. <laughs> that, that is awesome. I mean, but you know what? For anyone, it's, it's Yamanaka. Those hearts are well-deserved. Yeah. 
<laughs> nice, nice. So, um, great, man. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, uh, I think it's important for us to not only have lab heads, but also postdocs and even graduate students. And, uh, I'm glad you were able to, um, join us as a postdoc. Um, I'm wondering what you, maybe if you could just chime in and explain your experience. Cause you're what, uh, three years deep into your postdoc. Or is it wow, two? Wow, crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, time flies, but you've definitely published twice already, I, I've seen, or maybe more. Um, so you're yeah. doing well. And um, so uh, maybe you could just, for our listeners, uh, because typically you, you graduate from college, you, then you move on to grad school, you get your PhD, and then you're supposed to do a three-year postdoc and then become a professor, which almost never happens anymore, but it it can. <laughs> And, um, uh, just maybe, uh, you could, uh, describe your experience maybe from moving from New York to Harvard and, uh, how it is to be in that scientific community. Well, it was really difficult, obviously. I, so I went to undergrad at Columbia in New York. And so I also went to, uh, the Weill Cornell for grad school. And so I was in New York for, oh, almost forever. It was like 12 years. Yeah, and so it was a big culture shock to go from, you know, Manhattan or Brooklyn to to Boston, Cambridge. Um, but I overall, I love it. You know, there's it's a great community for um, scientists as well as other people. And um, there are just a lot of uh, intelligent people who are trying to do good things in society. And so there's a huge technology contingent, especially with, like, MIT being down the road. Um as far as post-stocking, uh, obviously no one really wants it to go past three years, but on average it seems to be going that direction. Um, in order to get to the faculty position, you typically have to do a long postdoc uh, so that you can get enough papers under your belt, or you can explore other options that are out there. And so that's another nice thing about Cambridge is that there's a lot of biotech companies and pharmaceuticals that uh, also have some skin in the game. And so they're also interested in learning about what's new and what's going on in the stem cell field. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. there's also industry combining with academia. Uh, I think some collaborations. I think, I think the, you know, that area we sometimes refer to as the Boston mafia in terms of like stem cell science, you guys are killing it over there. Um, but nowhere else really signifies like maybe out West, but, uh, the partnership between academia and industry. I think you guys have the best uh, melding of the two. I mean, you've got really great companies and really great, you know, MIT and Nobel laureates and great scientists just working together in Cambridge, Massachusetts area. It's just, I, I, that's my impression. It's uh, what, what's interesting is that there's a lot of uh, stem cell scientists that are within like not only like the Harvard uh, departments, but there's also many people within the Broad, which is uh, a joint uh, institution between Harvard and MIT. And so you combine a, a lot of uh, smart people from various backgrounds, like uh, people doing like whole genome sequencing and hardcore genetics and epigenetics, and then you mix them with like hardcore biologists and mix them with some like clinicians from the hospitals. And it makes for like this interesting brew where, you know, a lot can really get done if everyone is 
a focus on a particular mission. And so I think that's why a lot of people are doing well. Obviously, it still fosters a competition by having a, a lot of people. And so distributing credit can always be an issue. But overall, the science is progressing in a great way. And so it's an exciting time to be in the field overall. Yeah, and so yeah. for everyone out there listening, if you're interested, there's a, there are many avenues. It's not just You're not just restricted to academia. And so... Yeah, I saw that. Novartis <laughs> is opening up a neuro center over there too. Just it, it, the you know the opportunities are are definitely burgeoning, and um, I'm I'm glad you're enjoying it out there. So um, with that said, let's uh, move on to a little bit of a rant. You think you could join us for a rant, Asif? Sure, let's do this. Yeah, um, we're gonna do it. All so right. what do you? Because here's you, here's the situation, everyone out there. At some point, the three gentlemen on this microphone, on these microphones right now, were working in the same laboratory. If you guys remember those days, and uh, so I, I think I tried to fit. forget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so one one of the things uh, that is extremely frustrating. I think it goes in all walks of life, but particularly in the lab is when people, so you have a lab structure for everybody out there, right? A lot of people in there, it's busy, there's refrigerators involved, and there's little little stuff, little food that you use. And, you know, it's like a Tuesday, 1 o'clock, you go open up the fridge, you go in to get your stuff, the food, the stem cells are hungry, you go to grab, it's gone. Someone took your food, Someone misplaced your food. Someone used half the vial. You got no liquid. There's nothing there. It's like leaving a little bit of orange juice left that no one can drink. It's That's even, exactly what yeah. it is. It's the bottom of the milk. Yeah. <laughs> you know You know what started happening, though? We started uh, leaving, like, rancid milk jars in there, if you want to think of it that way. So, so I <laughs> Where remember. you would, like, mislabel things to try and prevent others from taking it. Uh, it was, and then what everyone would do to counteract this problem is they would just they would just label their stuff with the most awkward names. Like I would open up the fridge and see a bottle named Gumby, and I'd be like, "What the hell? So what is it? And I don't know what Gumby is, so I can't use it, right? Yeah. So that's what people would do. It got so shady. But now, you know, for for me, guys, on the other end, I have to control it. Because students in the lab are like, you know, people are using my stuff. People are using my stuff. And now I got to be the one to, to control it. But you can't control it. How do you stop that? It's impossible. Mm. Right? I mean, what do you do? They're, you just got to, they're growing, everyone's a grown person. They got to. Cameras. Gotta, cameras. It's like the reality TV shows. People act different when they know they're being watched. Cameras. I don't yeah. like cameras. I think if, if, you know, if money isn't an issue, and obviously it always is, but I think if you can keep track of how much a certain reagent is being used, then if if there are increases or decreases, you should be aware of that overall. And so, obviously, if people are taking things, that's not good, and so everyone should be able to talk about that um, without necessarily name-calling and pointing fingers. But yeah, I don't know. It's well, definitely a dirty situation. What about what about an electric fence for the incubator? You know, like if somebody tries to go in or to the, to the refrigerator, they get a little zap, little little quick hand zap. <laughs> well, I I know they uh they just hooked my mom's house up with one of those surveillance systems, and I could look at it on my iPhone. It's really not that hard. I think you could uh <laughs> just set it up. You could just you know open up the app on your iPhone and be like, oh look at that person. They 
they're using up the media right there. They're leaving that, you know, aspirator bottle full of media in the sink <laughs> and not bleaching it and just letting it sit yeah, there for you, know you to how, clean up. Wait, wait, wait. Time out. Everybody out there, that is Yosef. You heard his voice just escalate right there. That is his biggest <laughs> pet peeve right there. Oh. So, oh, so wait, everybody. So in the hoods where we do our culture work, there are these little vacuums. and They suck up all the media into this little canister. But the canister gets full and it gets nasty. And you need... <laughs> (laughs) You need to take it out, bleach it, and then get rid of it. But people would just take it out and throw it in the sink. So there would be like six of them in the sink. Yos would come in and be like, yo, why is there so many? (laughs) I hate cleaning up after other people, I must say. If that were my job, I wouldn't mind it so much. But if it's not, uh, come on, clean up after yourself, right? Oh man, it's so frustrating. Yeah. All right. So. <laughs> yeah. If I wasn't the one cleaning it, I probably wouldn't bitch. So, um, next time I'll just let it sit there <laughs> for like two um, weeks. Well, I gotta say, guys, this has been fun. It's been good to get us all together in a forum like this. It's cool for us um, to, to to do this, right, guys? Because no, we, you know what? That we, rant right there was therapeutic. I feel like I really yeah. That. I'm Thank all you. zen Thank right you. now. I'm all yeah. calm. I'm all reminiscing with you guys. <laughs> I'm getting all nostalgic. <laughs> uh, but but no, this has been really fun. Thanks, Asif, again for joining us. Congratulations on the paper. We look forward to seeing the rest of the story as it unfolds. I'm sure Kevin's lab um, and and you guys will be continually to put out some some good stuff. So, uh, what do you think, Yos? You want you want to take us out here? Yeah, man. Thanks a lot, Asif. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, guys. Hopefully, see you soon, brother. Take care. Yeah, take care, guys.